because you are used to sermons that walk primarily through books of the Bible, as my people are, when we have one of these sermons that are kind of one-off sermons, it requires a bit of context for us, because these five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 don't exist in a vacuum. They, they exist in a longer book as a part of a section that Paul is using to introduce one of the primary problems, both introduce and address one of the primary problems in the church at Corinth. Paul is writing to this church, likely from Ephesus, having planted the church a few years before, hoping to return to them. And some people who do business across the Aegean Sea from Corinth is Ephesus. And some people have returned from doing business in that city, and they've brought a report to Paul about what's happening in the church. And if you know your Bibles at all, you know that the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. They, they weren't really great at doing things the way they were supposed to do them. They, they had a, a lot of practical issues that in the uh, second half of this book, really the last two thirds of the book, if we consider church discipline to be a practical issue, uh, Paul addresses a lot of practical issues, things that the church was practicing wrong. But he begins this letter to the church by writing what is in our Bibles four chapters really on one subject. That is the unity of the church, that these people who had come to Ephesus from Corinth and reported what was going on in, uh, in that church. In chapter one, Paul says, it's been reported to me that there are, that there are divisions among you, that, that you've, you've, you've become tribal. That's the way that we would say it here in the 21st century. They, they've become tribal. They've, they've, drawn un, they've drawn artificial boundaries around personality, around who, what preachers they liked better, on who baptized them. And they were, they were establishing spiritual tiers of importance within the church based off of this unhealthy tribalism. And in chapter one, Paul says, y'all are crazy. Why would you try to be on team Paul or on team Peter or on team Apollos when you all should be on team Jesus because Paul's never saved anyone and Peter's never saved anyone and Apollos has never saved anyone, but only Jesus through the power of the gospel has saved. And it's within that context that Paul writes these first five verses of chapter two. And these verses allow us for a moment to slow down and ponder our shared gospel message this morning. When I was in my early 20s, there are some young people here gathered in this room. If you are in that stage of life, something's going to happen to your friend group that, that ha likely happened, that happened to mine. All of a sudden, nearly at once, everybody starts getting married. It's like dominoes. Once one person gets married in the friend group, everybody feels the pressure of needing to get married. And that happened in mine. We were in our early 20s. People actually used to get married in their early 20s. And that's what we did. I was married at 21. My wife was 20. We were babies. We've been married now for almost 22 years to the glory of God. And shortly after I was married, a friend that I had had since I was in kindergarten, um, proposed to his girlfriend and they were going to get married. And so I had these two friends that we had been friends for a very long time. 
And we decided to do something special before he got married. I was living in a little town called Wetumpka, Alabama. At the time, I was in my first uh, stint in full-time ministry just out of college. And my friends lived in South Louisiana where I grew up. So they drove from Baton Rouge to Wetumpka. They picked me up. And then we had it due north and drove to the uh, Windy City to Chicago, Illinois, with one goal in mind to recreate, as best we could, the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. (laughs) Now, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, if you're not aware, is one of the greatest movies of my generation. It's one of the greatest stories of the 1980s. I think it captures the mentality of Generation X better than just about anything else. I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and so we wanted to go to Chicago and do the things they did in that movie. And we accomplished many of them. We went to a day game at Wrigley Field, an incredible experience. All these people skipping work at one o'clock in the afternoon to see the Cubs play. We went to the top of the Sears Tower. We went to um, the Chicago Stock Exchange. We went and ate a steak in a fancy restaurant. They did not throw a parade and let us sing, but we did go to the Art Institute of Chicago. Now, I am not an art person. Maybe you are an art person. I am not an art person. But in the movie, they go to the Art Institute of Chicago. And so we went to the Art Institute of Chicago right there downtown to look for one very specific painting, a painting that is known as a Sunday on Le Grand Jatte. That's a French word. It was a French painting from 1884 that one of the characters in the movie becomes mesmerized by this painting and we wanted to go find it and take our picture in front of it. And we did that, but what I didn't expect was what would come next. I stood in front of this painting and if you're aware of this painting, if you're not, it is a very large painting and it's six feet tall, 10 feet wide. And it is made entirely of dots. This artist, it's called pointillism, I had to look that up, used used dot, paint dots to paint this incredibly large scene of a French island and people and families enjoying a Sunday afternoon picnic and playing there on the island. And as you stand in front of this massive work of art, if you get really close to it, all you can see is these dots. And as you back away, you see this incredible painting, one of the most famous paintings, probably the most famous painting at the Art Institute of Chicago. It, it, as it was for the character in the movie, a mesmerizing experience. I wasn't anticipating it. I stood there for quite a while just in awe of how long it must have taken to make that work of art, of how beautiful it was, of all of the things that you could imagine are happening in that scene. It was mesmerizing. Here's what I want us to do this morning Christ Fellowship, I want us to allow 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 to help us to be mesmerized by the gospel of Jesus today. That just as 20-something years ago, I stood in awe of this gigantic painting there in that museum, that we, through the word of God, would stand in awe of the gospel of Jesus, but that we would not only be mesmerized by it, but we would also be reminded of the importance of that message, our shared message, the message that my church in Suffolk, Virginia proclaims, and your church in Williamsburg, Virginia proclaims, and that churches all all over 
the world throughout the age have been entrusted to both proclaim and protect. The main idea of my sermon this morning is that the shared message of our churches should reflect the clear and simple truth of Christ crucified to transform sinners. We will see this in three parts as I exegete this passage for us first. Christ crucified is the central message of the gospel. Christ crucified is the central message of the gospel. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, this is the apostle Paul, when I came to you brothers, that is a word that is representing all of the church. It is the men and women that make up the church of of Corinth, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul has introduced this very idea in chapter 1, where in verse 18 he talks about the word of the cross being uh, folly to Jews and a stumbling block to to Gentiles, that they, they can't understand why the central message that the church is proclaiming points to a man crucified on a cross, and yet it is the central tenet of the gospel that the church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years have proclaimed a message with this central truth, that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified so that sinners, those in disobedience to God, those who are far away from God, might be radically transformed into His image. Now, there are lots of things that our churches talk about, and rightly so. There are are other parts of the gospel that we believe it is important for lost people to understand so that they can come to saving faith and for the church to consider together and remind one another of. But if we boil it all down, what we are left with is that central tenet that Christ died. What Paul says, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message we should hold in contrast to what was a very popular entertainment activity of the day in Corinth and other Roman cities. And that was the practice of public oration. They didn't have Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They were really missing out, weren't they? They they didn't have movies. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have Disney Plus. They they had to have some way to entertain themselves. And so they would entertain themselves. It was actually a big business. It was kind of like Hollywood is today in our culture, was the, 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 the business of public oration, that people would travel from one city to the next much like the Apostle Paul and his missionary team do across four missionary journeys, that people would travel from one Roman city to another giving speeches. And people would come, hundreds, thousands of them would would gather in these amphitheaters. If you've ever toured any places in the Roman Empire, you've seen these gigantic amphitheaters. And one of the things that would happen in some of those places would be these public speeches, people would come and and the culture was kind of built around this idea that they wanted to be told something new. 
and exciting. And they wanted it to be told in a way that, that was eloquent and sounded wise and, and, and appealed to the learned of the society. It would be like we wouldn't want to go see a movie with a bunch of bad actors in it. They, don't wanna, they didn't want to go hear a speech with somebody that couldn't hold their attention. And so Paul is contrasting his speech to the church at Corinth, to those who were saved in his first visit with them, to the speech of those who would travel around. And he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech is, is equivalent to, to our eloquence. He's saying, yeah, I didn't come to you with, with eloquence. But, but I came to you with a message that is of vital importance. I only knew one thing among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That time that he spent in Corinth wasn't about making disciples of himself. It was about pointing people to Jesus. You see, Paul actually, by his own admission, was not a very good orator. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, so the second letter that is in the scriptures that Paul writes to this church, he says this, this is verses seven through 10. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is in Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building, building you up and not for destroying you, I'd not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. If you've ever been asked the question, like at the beginning of a small group Bible study, you know, if there's anybody in the Bible that you could hear preach, who would you want to hear preach? People often answer, well, I'd love to hear the apostle Paul preach. No, you wouldn't. He wasn't very good at it. He was actually so not good at it that in Acts 20, he preached so long and so boringly that a guy named Eutychus fell out the window and died. And Paul had to go resurrect him. You see, this is, this is why it matters. It's not that eloquent speech and, and, and a good rhetorical style isn't of some use, but those things have never saved anyone. You see, it can't be about our ability to convince or conjole or coerce anyone into believing the gospel. The gospel at its core is the simple proclamation that Jesus died so that we might live. It, it, it's not about gaining followers and, and becoming a, a, a well-known popular speaker. It, it's not about, listen to me, young people. It's not about trying to convince your friends. The older people in this room figured this out. You will too. It's not about trying to convince your friends with the right words to say to make them believe in Jesus. You will never have the right words to say. All you'll have is Christ and him crucified. This is good news for us that it doesn't depend on our ingenuity and it doesn't depend on our creativity and it, it doesn't depend on our eloquence. It's simply that we proclaim Christ and him crucified. Listen to how Paul writes it later, just in this very letter in 1 Corinthians 15. He starts that chapter, a beautiful section of scripture, one you're likely familiar with. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Hear me, Christ fellowship, this is it. This is what saves. It is the death of Jesus in our place. In theological circles, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. That instead of pouring out his wrath on you and I, God the Father in ages past before the foundation of the world determined within the Trinity that they would pour out the wrath of the Father towards sin on Christ the Son, giving him what he didn't deserve so that he could then extend to us what we could never deserve. The goodness of God made known to us by Christ crucified on a tree. Let us, church, never remove the severity of the message of the cross. This is a temptation in our modern age to, to, to soften the cross, to blur the lines of the cross, to, to not make it sound as harsh as of a reality as it is. May we, as we proclaim Christ crucified, recognize that it is a severe message that we proclaimed, that the wrath of God is due sinners, and that God in his goodness poured it out on Jesus so that we might come to him. Hear me, church, there is no salvation if Jesus doesn't hang on a cross to bear my sin and my shame and the wrath due all of us. There is no salvation without the severity of the cross. So we stand today to marvel in it, to recognize that God did not have to crucify Jesus, but he chose to crucify Jesus. He chose to pour his wrath on his only son so that his redeemed people might live. We also have to guard against mixing things with the cross. This is another modern error it's actually not just a modern error. It's an old error. The church of God throughout the age have mixed things in with the cross. And when we mix anything in, prosperity, liberation, work, sacraments, what have you, we miss the gospel. And hear me, Christ Fellowship, when we miss the gospel, people miss out on being able to believe. This is why Paul says in 
Romans 10, how will they call on him and who have they not believed? And how are they to believe in him and who have they never heard? And how are they to hear with, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the, the point. If, if, if we, as the church of God, fail to preach the central message of the gospel that Christ was crucified so that sinners may be forgiven, then we are going with a message that saves no one. And we have been entrusted with the only message in the world that saves. So may we be mesmerized by it. And may we recognize that there is no gospel outside of Christ and Him crucified. Number two, the Holy Spirit's power at work in the church is demonstrated by the transformed lives of sinners. The Holy Spirit's power at work in the church is demonstrated by the transformed lives of Sinners, verses three and four, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, some would read verses three and four and believe that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and the manifestation of spiritual gifts and, and that the way that we're able to see that someone is a Christian is because they have spiritual gifts. The problem with that line of thinking is the way that spiritual gifts were used and abused in the church at Corinth. I think it's impossible for Paul to be thinking about spiritual gifts here when he talks about power, because this is a topic that Paul is going to have to both clarify and correct over the course of three whole chapters later in the book. He does this in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, where, where he has to correct their, uh, their view of spiritual gifts. He even calls them in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12, uninformed. So, so this, this can't be about spiritual gifts. It's, it's got to be a something else because they were ignorant about the depths of the power of the Spirit. So Paul begins when talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 with a very basic plan. Listen to it. He says, starting in verse 2, and you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And you say, what? why is he talking about spiritual gifts? Why, why does he talk about people saying Jesus is accursed? And why is he talking about people saying Jesus is Lord? Because Paul, in, in instructing them here on spiritual gifts, he brings them back to the very basics of the Spirit's work in the life of people. That the very basic work of the Spirit in the life of people is making, where pe making people able to say Jesus is Lord, this is the primary demonstration of the Spirit's power in the church of God. He takes someone who is dead in their trespasses and sin and makes them alive in Christ. This is the power of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here in verse 4. It seems clear, abundantly clear. When we consider what he says in chapter 12, that, that we're supposed to recognize that 
this is not the only thing that the Holy Spirit does, but it is the primary thing that the Spirit does, that the Spirit takes that which is dead and makes it alive. As Jesus says in John 3, the Spirit takes that which was born once and makes it to be born again. As the prophets of old spoke, the Spirit takes that which is stone and makes it flesh. It is the Spirit of God who radically transforms all who are in Christ. And this is the primary demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power at work in you and at work in our churches. We need to understand that our desire to see the Holy Spirit move in people's lives and to move in our churches is most clearly and faithfully on display when a sinner says, Christ is Lord. Paul affirms this, for instance, in his letter to the his first letter to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. But we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In that church, he says the same thing. We know that the gospel came to you and it was received by you because the Holy Spirit changed your life. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, my friends. We don't have to go looking for something mystical. We can simply celebrate with the angels in heaven when the Holy Spirit convicts someone of their sin, turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, calls them from darkness into light, and they believe. There is no greater miracle. There is no greater power, my friends, than that. Listen to the way the great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon's talked of this power in a sermon in the 1880s. Spurgeon said this, this is a little bit of a long quote, but bear with me. He asked, he begins with a question. What is it that makes the young man devote himself as a missionary to the cause of God to leave father and mother and go into distant lands? It is a thing of power that does it. It is the gospel what is it that constrains the faraway minister in the midst of cholera to climb up that creaking staircase and stand by the bed of some dying creature who has that tragic disease? It must be a thing of power which leads him to risk his life. It is the love of the cross of Christ which urges him to do it. What is it which enables one man to stand up before a multitude of his fellows, all unprepared, it may be, but determined that he will speak nothing but Christ and him crucified. What is it that enables him to cry like the war horse of Job in battle? Yes, and more glorious in might. It is a thing of power that does it. It is Christ crucified. What encourages that timid female to walk down that dark road some wet evening that she may go and sit by the victim of a contagious fever? What strengthens her to go through that den of thieves and pass by the depraved and the perverted? What influences her to enter into that house of death and there sit down and whisper words of comfort? Does gold make her do it? They are too poor to give her gold. Does fame make her do it? She will never be known nor written among the mighty women of this earth. What makes her do it? What impels her to it? It is the power, the thing of power. It is the cross of Christ. Hear me, church, there is no greater demonstration of the power of God 
than the transformed lives brought by the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. Let the church of God not seek fame or influence or riches or any worldly promises. Let our hearts be convinced that real power, true power, is the saving power of the Holy Spirit. Let us give our lives for this power. Let us set our minds to proclaiming this power. Let us attune our very nature to this power that transforms lives. Because when we walk in the gospel of Jesus, we demonstrate the greatest power on earth, the power of the Holy Spirit that takes a sinner and turns him into a righteous saint. Number three, any message that points away from the central message of the gospel leads to false faith. Paul concludes this paragraph with these words in verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Any message that points away from the central message of the gospel leads to false faith. It's not that all eloquence leads to false faith, but eloquence divorced from the gospel leads to false faith. It's not that good stories lead to false faith, but good stories divorced from the gospel leads to false faith. It's not even that wisdom leads to false faith, but wisdom, apart from God's wisdom, the gospel does. God has been at work in this way since the beginning. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, was a prophet during the day of a man named Zerubbabel, who rebuilt the temple of God after the exile, a few hundred years before Jesus walked the earth. And through the prophet Zechariah, the Lord speaks in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, and he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How is it that God has worked from the beginning He has worked by the power of the Holy Spirit, a work that only He can do, a work that we're unable to do on our own, but that He does for us. And true proclamation of the gospel, hear me church, true proclamation of the gospel will never lose its power. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of Christ be emptied of power. You say, how in the world can the cross of Christ be emptied of power? Well, it can't. The cross can't be emptied of power. And Paul's not saying that it can be, but our message, when it is empty of the cross, is empty of power. When we do, like I said during the first point, when we mix anything else in with the gospel, we end up losing the power that transforms lives. I told you this first four chapters, Paul's primary concern is unity within the church because they had become tribal. They had begun to build walls where walls were not needed to be built. But hear me, church, and I'm so grateful for your partnership, and I'm grateful for other churches, like-minded churches like ours across Hampton Roads, across our nation, and across this world that faithfully proclaim the gospel. Do you know where somewhere we do need to build walls? We do need to build walls around the church of God as it relates to false prophets and false teachers. We do need to say, these people are not with us because they have emptied the cross of its power by mixing things in 
and by denying the truth of God's word. Paul warns us of these false teachers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. He says, and what, am I to do, and what I am doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, now hear this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. False teachers that lead men astray have existed from the very beginning and exist today. Paul's appeal to Satan reminds us that the very first false teacher was in the garden. And one of their ways they convince people of of the, their, their, they'll use words they sometimes use, their blessing, their anointing, their, their power is it, through worldly words and worldly shows of power. But hear me, the true church of Christ, the true gospel of Jesus will always outlast them and will always overcome them. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And the church of Christ will persevere in the true gospel of Jesus. I always ask this question at the end of a sermon, so what? <laughs> well, what, does this, what does this mean for us? One quick point of application. We must guard the message of the gospel as we proclaim it as the only hope for salvation. Church, we are entrusted with the most important message in the world the message of Christ crucified to transform sinners. And so we must proclaim it and we must guard it because it is the only hope of salvation. Towards the end of his ministry, several years after he writes these, this book that we've considered today, Paul has developed a young man who was on his ministry team into a pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was in a city called Ephesus, happened to be the same city that Paul is writing 1 Corinthians from, and sent him there to pastor in that place, to raise up elders, to correct some false teaching. He writes two pastoral epistles to Timothy. And at the end of the first one and the beginning of the second one, we read similar things. At the end of the first one in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, Paul encourages Timothy, he says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul encourages Timothy to guard the gospel. He says, this is your job, Timothy, guard it. And then his, the beginning of his next letter to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let me tell you, Christ Fellowship of Williamsburg. I am so grateful for you and your church. I don't know many of you, but I mean this. This is not pastor speak. I mean this. I am grateful for you because you have faithfully guarded the deposit of the gospel in this city. And unfortunately, that is becoming far too rare in our world as 
places that call themselves churches that maybe even once were faithful to the gospel wander away from it. They go off into irreverent babble and contradictions into worldly knowledge. They do what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, swerve away from the faith. I am grateful to you that you have both guarded the gospel and that you faithfully proclaim the gospel. Will that be true throughout the generations of this church? And it's my prayer for you. It is my exhortation towards you from God's word today that we have amongst our churches a shared gospel message, Christ and him crucified. And this is the only hope of salvation. And so we must guard it and faithfully proclaim it because it is the good news for a dying world. And no matter how many turn their backs on it and no matter what it means for me as our culture rejects it, may church like Christ Fellowship and Nansman River and so many others that we are in partnership. May we stand firm on it, believing that the Holy Spirit will continue to use it to make dead men and women alive in Christ because it is only by the gospel, our shared message, that this is done. So may we guard it and may we proclaim it as the only hope for those who will be saved by it. Let me pray for us.